Sherry. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I was told I have until 1 o'clock, so I don't know whether you like to leave early or you want me just to keep nattering on. Yak, yak, yak. So if people start falling asleep, I'll quit. That's a promise. All right? So as long as you're with me, I'll stay with you. And we'll see how far we can go. We are looking at Philippians chapter 4 today. So if you want to follow along, I'll read those uh, verses right now. Philippians 4, we're just going to read the first uh, eight or nine verses thereabouts. goes like this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. To agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help those women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things, and what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for fellowship. We thank you for the way that you bring us together to focus our minds collectively on your word, and I pray that as we spend this time together, uh, you'll encourage our hearts that we will Leave here with a, with a better sense of who you are and how you feel about us and what you expect of us and how we should respond to you. And so, Father, I pray that you would free us from distractions, distractions in the environment around us and distractions of the thoughts in our own heads so that we might really hear from you today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the very first word in this passage is therefore. And that's troubling to me as a preacher because it means that what I'm about to speak about really has its foundation somewhere else. And the somewhere else is in the verses that precede it. So we can't really get on with this passage until we read at least a couple of verses from the previous chapter. So we're going to do that now. How's that? Let's go to Philippians chapter 3 and see what Paul was talking about that would lead him to carry on and base what he's going to say in chapter 4 uh, on the, the, the ideas that he's, uh, that he's leaning on. And, and what we have here in verses 20 and 21 is the idea of our citizenship being in heaven. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it... We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So everything Paul wants to say to us in chapter 4 is based on what he said at the end of chapter 3. And that is, there are two main points. One is that our citizenship is in heaven and that from heaven we await a savior. Now, we have just been through the political process here in Canada of choosing a government. And there were lots of people, I don't know if you paid any attention to the news, the ads, things on social media, there were a lot of people and it really looked like they were hoping for a political savior. Did anybody notice that? They talked about how awful things have been and how wonderful things would only be if their person was elected. Or, on the other hand, some people were saying how wonderful it had been and how awful it would be if somebody else got elected. I'm not here to make a political statement. The point is that a lot of Canadians were looking for a political savior, somebody who would rescue them. You know, folks, we don't have a political savior. We have a savior who comes from heaven where we are citizens. Now, as I look at you, I see a rich variety of heritages. Is that fair to say? Many of you have lived in another country, at least one other country. Whether you've been citizens of that country or not, I don't know. Let's just for fun, just for my own edification, how many of you have actually lived in another country, whether you were citizens there or not? Yeah, so lots of you. You get this. You understand. Because when you're somewhere else where you're not a citizen, things are different for you. I lived in Ecuador for 10 years. We were not Ecuadorian citizens. We were foreigners, gringos, as the Spanish called us, gringos. And uh, there were lots of things that citizens got to do that we didn't get to do. And there were restrictions on us because of the kind of visa we had, we couldn't work. We were there to do missionary work, but we couldn't be paid for anything. So there were no part-time jobs for us or our kids. There was nothing like that. Uh, we couldn't participate in the political process of the country. We couldn't vote. We couldn't even express a preference for one party or another. We could get into trouble because we were supposed to all be neutral uh, because we weren't citizens and we, we didn't have rights. Uh, that's the same thing as you have moved around from one place to another. You've noticed that citizens have privileges that visitors, foreigners, don't have. And in a sense, we need to keep in mind that our citizenship, first and foremost, is in heaven. So you're all living in Canada now. I don't know how many of you are Canadian citizens. I won't, uh, I won't ask that question. But the fact is that really that doesn't matter nearly as much as we might think. As Christians, we're thinking about the fact that our citizenship is in heaven and that from heaven we are awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever nationality you are, whatever country, doesn't matter what country uh, you belong to in terms of citizenship on earth, what matters is that we are citizens of heaven. So on the basis of that, as we keep this in mind, we can now move on to Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, and Paul is going to give us some instructions about how we would live in this place we are visiting, as it were, these, this, this alien land that we live in, um, 
remembering always that we are citizens of heaven and that we are awaiting the Savior to come from there. So here we go. Let's look at these verses uh, just one by one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you were to look in Acts chapter 16, you would see Paul's first visit to Philippi. We're not going to look there, but I'm just going to remind you of a few key characters. Because Paul here says that he loves them and longs for them. He had visited Philippi, but had not been able to spend the time with them there that he would have liked to have spent. He had led several to the Lord, and that's why he calls them my joy and my crown. Those of you who have had the privilege of leading someone to the Lord know that it gives you a special bond. You have a special relationship with those people. And Paul had led Lydia to the Lord. We know for sure he had, he had met with uh, the, the godly women down by the river. It was the first, first thing he did when he got to Philippi and probably some of the other women as well. And he had had that amazing encounter with the jailer in Philippi. A man who was about to kill himself and Paul saved his life as, uh, as he announced, don't harm yourself, we're all here. So he had a close bond with these people. He had a wonderful relationship and he, and he loved these people and he saw them as his spiritual reward. And he wants them to, and the words are, stand firm or your translation may, may be stand fast, but stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, what's the idea here? The idea is that of not giving ground, not changing your position. Now, again, remember our citizenship is in heaven, so he's not talking about a physical place. He's not talking about, you know, guarding Philippi and not letting people in. No, he's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritually standing firm and not letting their faith be shifted as conditions change. And we see social conditions changing in Canada. I have a, I have a friend, a couple, who have a little boy who uh, has a number of, of very severe disabilities, and they are truly worried that with the direction Canada is going socially and what's accepted and what's expected, that at some point there may be a a tribunal or some group who will decide whether their son is worthy of life or not. Because they, they, people would look at him and say he has no quality of life. And with the way things are going, there's a very real danger that, that he would be institutionalized or, or actually euthanized, which is a shocking thing to say. I never thought in all my life I'd be saying this to a congregation. But you know, that is the direction we're headed if you, if you follow, the, follow the signs. So those are the kinds of things we, we don't want to give ground on. We want to, we want to hold fast that God is the giver of life. And God is the giver of our physical life and he is the giver of our spiritual life. And so we don't give up those things easily. Now in verse 2, he, he gets really personal. And I can only imagine what happened in this situation. You have to remember that many people of this time, when Paul was writing these letters to the churches, that many people couldn't read. 
There were only few people who could read. And so uh, the letter would be read publicly. So I don't know where Yodia and Syntyche were sitting, presumably not together. But suddenly, whoever's reading the, the letter from Paul, maybe the, one of the elders probably gets up and he says, hey, I've got a letter from Paul. And everybody gets all excited. And, and it's great until this verse, chapter 2, verse 2. And he suddenly gets really personal about these two women. And I don't know who to point at. I'll just, you know, point at some empty chairs. How's that? That's safe for everybody. He says, I entreat you, Yodia. Whoa. And Sintiki, I entreat you, Sintiki. You imagine the response of these people and everybody else, because everybody knows each other, right? That you have, that you agree in the Lord, be of one mind in the Lord. Now, if if that church, if the church in Philippi was anything like this church, and I'm going to make this really personal, everybody knew what the problem was. Did you, have you noticed that that kind of happens? Like, word gets around. Everybody knew what was going on. And so Paul, the great apostle, the one who had led several of them to the Lord himself, now entreats these two women that they agree together in the Lord. Now, it's interesting that he says, agree in the Lord. We don't know what the nature of the disruption in the relationship was. Maybe they just didn't see eye to eye on something. I don't know. But in the Lord, they could be unified. They could have unity. And so that's what he's, that's what he's appealing to uh, um, regarding them in this, in, this, in this church in Philippi. And then he starts, he carries on being very, very specific and very personal. And he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I like this verse, chapter, uh, verse 3. I want to just spend a moment here because it seems that when, when Paul left Philippi, he, he'd, he'd had a little ministry team, if you like, a little core group of people. And you know that in every church that you've ever been in, there's a little core group and they do about 80 or 90% of the work, quite frankly. That's just the way it works. And this is Paul's little core group, and he mentions some of them by name. There's this person he calls True Companion, and we don't know for sure who he, who he was. Some people think it was Epaphroditus. Some people think it was Luke. Some people have other speculations. But anyway, True Companion, we're going to talk about him in a minute. Um, and then he talks about uh, Yodi and Syntyche, these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement. There's another man named Clement, and Clement's name means merciful. And Clement was actually a fairly common name at the time. In, in other pieces of literature, we find Clement's name. And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And I'm quite sure that everyone in the church of Philippi would have known exactly who all these people were. But I want to talk about this interesting character he just calls true companion. And it's companion, this word, this translated companion, the Greek word is sudsugos. And some people think it was actually a name, sudsugos. But I don't think it was a name because in nowhere in Greek is it a name other than possibly in this situation. But I think it was a nickname. And I can't tell you how excited I was 
when I was chatting with Nisha to learn that nicknames are a big part of the culture. That's cool. I like that. So you all get this. Now, in this case, the true companion, that was his nickname. Could you imagine having a cool nickname like true companion? It seems that among this group that Paul worked with, there was somebody who just stuck so close to Paul that everybody called him true companion. And while we don't know who he was, everybody in that church would have known exactly who he was. And, and it got me thinking about this. If you had a spiritual nickname associated with your ministry in the church, what would it be? Mm. I'm not talking about the nickname that everybody knows you by now. I'm saying if you had a spiritual nickname, what would it be? Joyful one. If I said, greetings, friends at New Life Bible Chapel, especially joyful one, who, who are you thinking of? Is it you or is it somebody else? Or what about, uh, oh, reasonable one? Or Grace, that's a nice name. That's a, that's a name that we use, but, but maybe it could be a nickname because you're just so gracious. Hmm. I'm going to just commend that little exercise to you. You think about what your spiritual nickname would be. And try to, we'll try to stay positive. We won't go, you know, like Mr. Negative, Mr. Boss Man, you know, Mr. Cranky Pants. You know, we're not thinking about those nicknames because there might be some of you who have those nicknames. You, by the way, would be the last to know if you have those nicknames. Because only other people call you that when you're not around. How am I known among my Christian peers? I had a nickname when I was in Ecuador. Uh, I, did, I ran a little recording studio. <clears throat> and uh, we had a variety of people come in to record. And many of them, to put it kindly, were not blessed with as much talent as they thought they had. And so I learned early on not to reflect any emotion in my face as they performed because I didn't want to discourage people, nor did I want to encourage them when they should have been discouraged. So I kept a very flat expression when I was sitting in the control room doing stuff. I just, nothing. And so they, they started to call me El Bravo. And uh, that, they also assumed I was angry all the time because I, didn't, I just didn't show any emotion. So they just assumed I was negative and, and uh, kind of angry about everything. Now, that wasn't a nickname that I'm proud of now. And I didn't even know that that's what they called me until later. But, um, you know, sometimes what people perceive in you is, is they associate that with you and you become kind of identified with that. So something to, to keep in mind as, as you go through your, through your life. Um, you know, so he, he, he deals with this little thing in verses 2 and 3 with Yodi and Syntyche, and he, he asks the true companion, whoever that was, to intervene, to help a little bit with that. Um, and we don't know exactly how that worked out, but that was his instruction. Now verse 4, let's carry on, and we'll think about some things 
uh, to do with us. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, normally when something is repeated, it's because the person who's saying it thinks it's really important and they're concerned that you didn't quite get the message. So I'll say it again. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he look, it's as if he's looking at the faces and he knows how they're, how they're responding to that. And he, and he says it again. And again, I will say, rejoice. Get my point? So I got thinking, why would Paul ask the Philippian Christians to rejoice? Why was that an issue for them? And um, <clears throat> I suspect that they had some of the same problems we have. That is that that little church was very out of step with the culture. Now, for those of you who are history buffs, who like a little history, listen up. And if you don't like history, this is the time to catch a nap. Because we're going to do history for just a few seconds. Philippi was a Roman city. But if you know your geography, you know that Philippi was in... That's right, Greece. So what's a Roman city doing in Greece. That's like an Indian assembly being in Canada, I suppose. There are a whole lot of Romans there. <laughs> That's kind of fun. So what had happened? Here's the history part. Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC. Two of the ringleaders of the assassination were Brutus and Cassius. Now like all rich men of the time, they had their own little private armies. They also assumed that when they got Julius Caesar out of the way, that they would be the ones who would slide into power and they would be able to restore the Republic to the way they wanted it to be. Because you see, Julius Caesar was really headed in the empire direction and he was going to be the emperor and that's why they killed him. Because they didn't want one leader. But, Mark Anthony and a, a guy named Octavian at the time, who later became Caesar Augustus. Have we ever heard of Caesar Augustus? Yes, we have. So Mark Anthony and Octavian at the time, they came in and they started to stir things up and they turned people against Brutus and Cassius. Well, when the political tide turns, somebody's got to leave. There's not room for everybody in this town. So Brutus and Cassius took their little armies and they headed to Greece where it was safe. I won't give you all the details, but eventually Anthony and Octavian decided that they were going to chase them down and get rid of them. So they went to Philippi where they were hiding out. There they defeated them. It's a long story. I won't tell you the whole story. It's kind of interesting. But the fact is that, so you have a whole bunch of Roman soldiers in Philippi where they just had this battle. And once the, uh, Brutus and Cassius uh, were killed, they both committed suicide, by the way, because they couldn't bear the thought of losing and having to go back to Rome and be executed, so they just did it themselves. Um, there was a bunch of Roman soldiers there, and things were kind of calm now. There wasn't much to do, and so many of them were apparently about due to retire from the army anyway, and it was a 1,300-kilometer hike, mostly marching, a little bit of ship work, but mostly marching back to Rome. And these mature people, like myself, you know, gray hair, 
gimpy knees, things like that. The thought of a 1300, uh, you laugh too much. That was, that was cruel. I, I will not use myself as an example anymore here. Note to self. <laughs> they, didn't really, they didn't really think the prospects of that 1,300-mile hike back to Rome was worth it. And they kind of looked around and went, Philippi, I could live here. This could be home. I think I'll just stay. And so they did. And that's the beginning of how Philippi became a Roman city in the country of Greece. Fascinating, no? So those of you who are napping, wake up. We're back to biblical stuff. But you know, I, I like to tie those things in because, because it reminds us that the stories we read in scripture happened in a real time and a real place. These aren't just fairy tales that somebody made up. No, this, this is his history. It is tied to the rest of history, the other things that we know. So as a Roman city, of course, and by this time, uh, Octavian had become Augustus and, and emperor worship had begun. Um, and there were a lot of things that that little church in Philippi would face that didn't fit well with Roman culture. For example, um, the Roman religion contained hundreds of gods. Some of them major gods and some of them lesser gods, but the fact is they had lots of gods. And well, that didn't fit with Christianity, did it? Because Jesus didn't leave room for other gods. No, he was Lord. And so there was no room for them in, in the public square in terms of religion. And, and the idea that Christians would say that Jesus is Lord, that conflicted very seriously with the Roman credo, which was Caesar is Lord. So the Romans would yell, Caesar is Lord! And the Christians would say, Jesus is Lord. And it was a little awkward. Socially, culturally, the Romans loved violence and blood. They entertained themselves watching people kill each other for crying out loud. That didn't go with the teaching of Jesus, that we humble ourselves, that we serve each other, that we be gentle. That didn't work very well. So they found themselves at odds with the culture. Do we as Christians find ourselves at odds with the culture? So maybe we need to be told, maybe we need to be told, rejoice in the Lord always. Now, notice what he says, is rejoice in the Lord. Because, you know, frankly, our circumstances can be less than terrific. We do live in an increasingly godless culture, so circumstances are not positive. Often we are not going to be rejoicing because of the circumstances, and many of us individually, you know, we, we face unemployment, we face ill health, we face problems with relationships in our families. Those circumstances are not joyful circumstances. We lose loved ones. We don't do well at school. Things go wrong. But Paul says, you know what? Regardless of the circumstances, rejoice in the Lord always. And we can always rejoice in the Lord. And that's what we, what we did during that earlier hour. We, we focused on him. We worshiped him. We rejoiced in him. And I don't know what struggles you're facing, you're dealing with. No doubt you're dealing with some. But we can rejoice in the Lord. And it's, a good, it's good to be reminded 
as Paul reminded the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Then verse five, he says, uh, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, the Greek word here, again, it doesn't, uh, doesn't show up very often in the New Testament. So uh, it, it may be more like gentleness, uh, moderation. Those are other words that are uh, used to translate the Greek word. But the idea would just go with reasonableness or gentleness right now. And Paul says, everyone should see what, what gentle people you are, how reasonable you are. Well, how could that possibly be? I suspect that culture in Philippi was much like culture is in, in our world, and there's not much in the way of reward for those who are gentle and reasonable. Aggressive, strident, loud, threatening. Oh, yes, those people get heard. But the reasonable people, not so much. The gentle people, Mm -mm. So on what basis should we be reasonable or gentle people? Well, on the same basis that we should stand firm. Do you remember why in verse 1 he said, stand firm, therefore stand firm. Therefore, because we have a heavenly citizenship and we're waiting for our Savior from heaven, therefore stand firm. Don't back down because we... We come from a, another country that has a different set of values, that has a different leader. And for unity in the church with Yodi and Syntyche, hey, we come from a different place. You don't, you don't do what the Romans do. You don't get into tiffs and divide up. No, you have unity in the body because our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there. And rejoice in the Lord always, because we're citizens of heaven. This world is passing away, and we will, we will pass out of it. And we don't need to fret ourselves because of the declining culture, because our citizenship is in heaven, and we're waiting for a Savior from there. And the same is true here when he talks about gentleness and reasonableness. You may say, yes, but if I'm gentle and reasonable... Nobody will pay attention to me. Nobody will give me any respect. And it's probably true. Because in Canadian culture, people who are gentle and reasonable don't get a lot of respect. They tend to get walked on. It's the loud people, the angry people. They get the respect. They get to have their voice heard. But our citizenship isn't here on this earth. It's in heaven, and we're awaiting a savior from there. So that's why that therefore at the beginning of verse one is so important because it reminds us of the foundation for all of the things that he says, such as the next one, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And we need to read the next verse too. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious about anything. I consulted the all-knowing internet and found out that 
major anxiety episodes occur in about 20% of the population of the UK, Canada, and the US. And because I know many of you have a South Asian heritage, I thought I'll look up and see what it says about India. Leads the world 35%. Wow. So I thought this is applicable. A large percentage, we'll stay with the 20% because you're all Canadians now. Uh, we're in Canada. But 20%, that's one in five people will have an episode, a major episode of anxiety, clinical anxiety sometime in their life. And I need to say this, because I don't know you. If you have clinical anxiety for crying out loud, get some medical help, because that's usually the first step you need to take to take care of that problem. And it is a problem. So don't, don't pull the super spiritual thing. Um, you know, God does use medicine. But the fact is that a whole lot of us aren't going to ever have clinical anxiety, but we worry, we're concerned, we're anxious, we just don't know what's going to happen, and we're just on tender hooks all the time, and we're distracted, and our minds are absorbed in how are our kids going to turn out, what's ever going to happen with dear Aunt Bessie. Uh, all kinds of issues, you know, is the value of my house going up or is it going down? Uh, do I have enough money to take advantage of this stock thing that just, that somebody called me about? You know, and, and we get ourselves all worked up and we become spiritually useless because we're so focused on whatever is causing our anxiety, whether it's, it's clinical anxiety or just garden variety. Shucks, I'm really worried about this. And Paul says... Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, please notice that Paul doesn't say that ill health is of no concern to us. Having no employment doesn't matter. How your kids turn out, psh, don't worry about it. Doesn't, it's not important. No, he doesn't say any of that. All of those things are important. Lots of things about your life are important. But he says, don't become obsessed with thinking about that, with worrying about it. Instead, you recognize that there's a problem. You take that to the Lord. In prayer and supplication, two words, incidentally, which both basically mean very similar things, but prayer is a more general idea. And that's, it's the idea of, of conversing with God, where we just bring God into the circumstances of life. I don't know if you are familiar with an old work written by someone called Brother Lawrence. It's called Practicing the Presence of God. Are you familiar with that? It was written back in 1666, so that's before any of you were born. That was before I was born too, okay? <laughs> Sheesh. Anyway, this man, he, um, it's a very long story and I don't have time for long stories because I do want to let you out early. Um, but he ended up, he'd been a soldier, he was wounded, he, was, he ended up in a monastery. And he ended up in the kitchen of the monastery. And he hated kitchen work. And he thought by accepting the kitchen work that it would make him, it would make him more humble. And it was a way of, 
You know, back in those days, they really believed that if you oppressed your body, that, that you would flourish spiritually. Well, interestingly enough, he never really learned to love kitchen work. But what he did learn was that God walked with him through the unpleasant things of his life. And he began to converse with God. He, he practiced the presence of God by chatting with God all the time. And I know of several people who do this even now. Uh, walking through, one, one was a lady who uh, was suddenly divorced after 45 years of marriage. And she developed the habit of just chatting with God and keeping, bringing God into the circumstances, whatever they were, when she was out shopping, when she was driving her car, when she was doing housework, whatever she was doing, she just chatted with God. That's prayer. And we need to bring God into the circumstances of our life. Then with supplication, what's with supplication? Well, that's asking God to intervene. It's recognizing that there's something wrong, needs intervention, but we ask God to intervene. We don't just get ourselves all worked up and stay worked up. We take that and ask God to handle that. With thanksgiving, he adds, be thankful, recognize that we can rejoice in the Lord. That's a good thing to do. Um, that we, we then make our request made known to God. And then he said something that, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I want to point something out. It's not just that God gives us his peace, which he does, but that's not all. It says the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God when we commit those troubles to him, actually protects us mentally and emotionally. Is that good or what? It saves us from getting into that grinding situation where things just go from bad to worse because we remember that our citizenship is in heaven. We're awaiting a savior from heaven. This world is not our home. We are just passing through and we don't need to stay upset about the things that upset everybody else around us because we're not from here, folks. We're from somewhere else. You've been very good. So I'm going to let you out early. But with this, we have to close. And listen to these words. Finally, brothers, these are the favorite words of congregations everywhere. Finally, he's going to stop. <laughs> finally, brothers, but listen to these final, final words. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is just, the true, actually, first, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. You're all reading this behind me. You're, you're cheating. If, there is, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. These are the things that we fill our minds with, not, not the way the world's going, not with their troubles. We have those, yes, but that's not what we fill our minds with. We fill our minds with these good things that God 
wants us to reflect on. And we find our, our hearts encouraged and protected by the peace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for all the good things that you have given us. We thank you most of all for the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we are saved, the one who has procured our citizenship in heaven. He is our, he is our sponsor as refugees in this world. He is the one that we look to to take us from here to there. And we remind ourselves collectively and individually that um, this isn't the whole story on this earth, but there's more and there's better. And that's what we wait for. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these reminders that Paul has given us to stand firm, to be unified in our service for the Lord, to rejoice always, to not be anxious about things, and to be gentle, to be reasonable. These are the things that are of value in your kingdom, even if they're not of value in Canadian culture. And so we look to you to produce by your spirit these things in our lives so that we can live the kind of life that is suitable and fits well with our heavenly citizenship. We give you thanks again for this time that we've shared together. We pray that as we leave here, that you will remind us from time to time of the things that we've talked about and that your peace would indeed protect our hearts and minds. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.